Welcome to the symposium. Have you ever asked yourselves how is it that books about martial arts and warfare contain so many good insights about self-improvement? If you have asked yourself this question, you have come to the right place. And there is no one better here to talk with me about it than Josh. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say I know all that much about martial arts, but when it comes to Eastern philosophy, on the other hand, I am quite the connoisseur of it, if I do say so myself. This is exactly what a martial artist would say, trying to fly under the radar and not say that you know stuff. Yeah, that, that is true. I'm more of a boxer than a martial artist. I did karate when I was a kid. That's about it, really. Great. But um, yeah, this is the way of the sword anyway. That the sword is the, the ultimate martial weapon, as, as he rightfully states. Okay, so who is he? He is Miyamoto Musashi, who wrote the Book of Five Rings which is essentially a book that is simultaneously about warfare, but also about life. And um, a lot of you have asked us to do this, especially I think JJHW mm -hmm. has taught, asked us to do this uh, many times. I think it's time to do it. Yeah, it's one of the, the books I actually haven't read because I was under the understanding it was mostly just a sword manual and there wasn't that much philosophy to it. And then you said to me, um, well, there is actually philosophical components to it and then I was all over it and I'm fresh off of the press from reading it and so it's all in my mind and I really enjoyed it actually just as a, a general um, sort of impression of the book I thought it was great you know if if you're interested in furthering your abilities of your mind and the blade then it's for you and I for one am all for all, all of those things Great. So basically, I want to say something that we're not going to do a book review because a lot of the book is concerned with movements and how to dodge the opponent and how to fight and how to hold a sword and how to do all these things. By the way, we do have a sword there. Yeah, I can uh, show you if you want. Yes. Okay. So we're not going to do a book review. We're not going to teach you how to wield a sword, but we are going to talk about the insights we can draw from Musashi's Book of Five Rings and the wisdom we can draw from it. When it comes to, to improving yourselves. Yeah, and there's a lot of philosophy in the book, isn't there? And yes. even the stuff that is a demonstration about how you should approach sword fighting is, um, and he explicitly says so, um, an analogy to other walks of life. And we're, I think we're going to get into this in, in greater detail. But... The, the whole book is almost uh, laden with analogy to other things. It, it tries to tease out universals of, of human mastery, I think, is part, one of the themes that the, the book tackles and saying that, you know, a master artisan is similar to a, a master of the blade in that they, they both approach their arts with similar philosophies yes. and he's trying to tease out the similarities. So it's actually quite a good book um, to approach if you're looking to understand the philosophy of, of combat and things like that. Let me ask you this because I have heard that you're an Eastern philosophy aficionado. Strong word, but, but sure. Okay, so would you say that Eastern philosophy is really based on metaphor or to a significant extent that when people write in that tradition, they very frequently use metaphors to illustrate what they want to say? So I think in this book, for instance, there's the word emptiness mm -hmm. plays a really heavy role. Yes. I think that, that sounds like a metaphor. 
Yes. And there certainly are lots of metaphors, but I would pose it as also a part of the language difference between East and West. So, you know, when we covered uh, the Tao Te Ching, um, we were talking about how the, the traditional Chinese characters would be laden with meaning that gets lost to a certain extent because it's a symbol that could mean multiple different things. It relates to lots of different concepts and in specific ways that get lost in translation. And I think that part of the reason we see lots of Eastern um, philosophy is very metaphorical is that that's kind of what their language um, encourages because you have this symbol that represents concepts. That's how their language works. Whereas our language, you know, you, you have it make up words which make a sound which represents okay. um, a concept. And so it's not as direct. And I think that there's a lot of poetry contained in that approach to language that you don't really get in Western style languages. And so that helps encourage analogy because you can have clever wordplay and things like that. You have a, a certain symbol that represents something, but also it has lots of other connotations which the, the native reader would understand, but when it's translated into English, um, to try and capture that kind of meaning, you have to um, use lots of, of different linguistic devices, and sometimes a little bit of it gets lost in translation, which is a shame. It's, it's one of those things that you kind of have to understand the language to fully grasp what they're trying to get at. But Great. there's still a lot there. Yes. So I think we should um, let the audience know of a structure that we could follow in order to discuss this because it's easy to get lost. It's such a rich text that... It's also not very long, which is... Yes, but that is deceptive. Mm -hmm. w would you not say so? Yeah, I, I caught myself um, reading a line and then just sitting and thinking about it. So it might be short in terms of the written words on the page, but if you approach it properly with, you know, due reverence and seriousness, you will find yourself sitting and thinking on what they're saying. I found myself kind of staring into space, imagining what it would be like to have to train uh, with a sword every day, because uh, unfortunately I don't do that. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's quite evocative. There's, there's lots of thought-provoking passages there. And if you take your time with it, and read stuff and think about it, because there's actually lots of prompts in there where he says, you should reflect on this. Yes, that, that, that was really nice. Yeah, it's, it's good to have that emphasis because it's implicit a lot of the time in Western philosophy. You don't explicitly say, you should think about this. Yes. Or you should meditate on this, because not only does it sound a bit arrogant in a Western sense in that you know, it, it's not that common to say that, so you're, you're making out as if what you're saying is a bit more profound than it may well be. But in the East, that ha you know, you've got more of a tradition of meditation. Of course, he references Buddhism explicitly a few times. Yes. Um, then it makes a lot more sense. It would be presumed that you meditate, and it's just giving suggestions, oh, this is useful to meditate on. You know, it's already part of your regime. It's not like you're telling someone to sit still and think about what you said. So there's a, a much different connotation, but I found myself uh, taking to doing it anyway. I didn't really need to be prompted. Yes. But I, I suppose it depends on who you are and how prone you are to do that. I do that in lots of books. It's why it takes me a long time to read a book is that I like to indulge my thoughts as they come up rather than uh, just sit there and feel like I've just got to 
slog through it without actually taking time to think about what's being said and in incorporating it into my own pre-existing notions of the world. And I think you do get a lot more out of the latter. Yes, I agree with you. And there are several people, they just skim or read something, they speed read it and they just say, okay, yeah, I read this or that and the other, but you don't see them absorbing the insights of those books. So, okay, yeah, okay, you, you read the language on the, on the pages of, of that book, but you, you didn't absorb its message. Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of my favorite things about um, Eastern philosophy as well, is that it's short and sweet. You know, they don't waste your time. It's meant to be um, concise, almost refined wisdom, I, I would say. Like he's writing at the age of 60 years old, as he says, and he's trying to summarize his experiences in a, as much of a condensed way as possible. He does a quite a good job of it, really. And even though I've not had 60 years of, of you know, being a swordsman, I could certainly understand where he was coming from, even though, you know, I'm, I'm 28 and living in England rather than yeah. 60 and living in feudal Japan. So that, that, there's, there's something to be said about how effectively he's communicated as well, which you wouldn't expect really from someone who um, has spent all of his time sword fighting and dueling and, and things like that. So I think we should say a bit about his bio biography. We don't know much about him but we know a few important things. Then talk a bit about the samurai, because he was a masterless samurai. <clears throat> uh, then talk about the story of the 47 Ronin, mm -hmm. because it shows it is considered to be one of the ultimate expression of Bushido, that was the, the way of the warrior that the samurai were really known for, and see the kind of culture that bred him, and the kind of cultural influences that he had in order to develop his own perspective. And then we could focus on the insights drawn from the book that are unbelievably pertinent to self-mastery. They certainly are. Well, it's, I think the book is all about self-mastery, really. Yeah. It may be focused on the sword, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned elsewhere. I think that one of the things that I like about someone who's mastered any, well, mastered, we never really master anything, do we? but you know, they're, they're some of the best in the world, um, is that their, their reverence for their craft and the lessons that they have refined over the years are a lot more universal. They're not specific. Like you, you speak to you know, a master fisherman or a master uh, woodworker or um, any, any number of professions and they will have life lessons embedded in their own experience. And I think experience should be the gold standard of all um, knowledge, really. I think that it is all well and good to have abstract arguments, but at this, you know, you've got real life experience to back it up. You know that at least that's grounded somewhat in reality. Sure, there's some amount of subjectivity in how it's interpreted, but it, say if you're a swordsman, You've got, if you're 60 years old, you've made it to that age after all the fighting that he's done, then him being alive and writing the book in the first place is a testament to his, his skill, I would say. Yes, and we will definitely go back to that theme because I think that it's one of the most important themes of the book. Mm -hmm. Where 
experience and thought can merge and when they can diverge. Yes. Okay, so let us say one thing. That he was born around 1584 and died around 1645, a few months after he finished this book. And he was essentially a masterless samurai, as we said, a samurai without a master. We will talk in a bit about who the samurai were. And he was in the Edo period. And the Edo period begins in the very beginning of the 17th century and ends with, I think, with a major restoration close to 1868, somewhere there. And it was a period that was a period of transition. And up to that point, the samurai were much more prevalent in Japanese society, but there was a shogun that was a sort of military leader, I think called Tokugawa, who implemented several policies that brought peace to Japan. So that meant that the elite class of warriors who were the samurai had to seek alternative employment. Because when you're a professor, professional warrior and there aren't any wars, you need to seek alternative employment. So that was a period where the samurai started trying to do other stuff and they started taking other trades. And you could say that a lot of the major texts, when it came to that tradition, came from that period because they had more time to sit down and read and write. So what is interesting with him is that he starts the book by saying that I'm now close to 60 years old and I am going to, the, to my cave with a candlelight and I'm going to sit down, write my story and talk to you about the way of the sword. And essentially he says that he is an undefeated duelist. He was an expert at sword fighting. He killed his first opponent when he was 13 and the last opponent when he was 29. He fought a lot in such duels. He traveled a lot. But then I think they say that he sort of left that behind and sought more peaceful, a more peaceful way of living. I think some people have said that he was a gardener, gardener at some point and he became a teacher. Anyway, he wanted to impart that knowledge. And he said that he said that he was practicing daily the art of the sword. And he at some point he came to the realization when he was 50 years old, and that's a really important thing, that his greatness at sword fighting wasn't so much a greatness that had to do with him amassing and mastering each martial art the idea that he grasped something deeper. And that's a major issue that he's talking about. That's a major theme because mm. he is focused very much on simplicity rather than multiplicity. So he's much more focused on substance than all the various kicks and martial arts. And that reminds me of the, I think the Bruce Lee line that I don't fear the person who has mastered, who has performed 10,000 kicks once, I fear the person who has performed one kick 10,000 times. 
That makes perfect sense to me, yeah. As in that they've perfected the art of one good kick, whereas, you know, it's, it's sort of the uh, being the jack-of-all-trades master of none. But then I think there is also some wisdom in, in spreading your uh, expertise and not being too much of a specialist. Yeah. Um, in fact, it might actually be worthwhile um, touching upon that because um, he, he does discuss the... I know we're going to talk about his history first, but he does discuss social roles and stuff, and I think we can go into greater detail about that. But he, he explains that being a warrior is one of the, the four main professions. And um, sure, it, it makes sense that you know, you've got this specialization and everything. You, you, d you do this one thing. But in the modern world, I think that it makes more sense to know a lot about the world and, and, and no less than be very specialised in one thing and to yeah. be well-rounded and adaptable rather than inflexible but really good on this one thing. Actually, I, I prefer the, the notion of being a generalist than a specialist because you, you get lots of analogies from other fields, which I'm sure he would appreciate as a lover of analogies himself, um, which you can translate to other things and bring wisdom from outside that may change how you view something. I think that basically that he would, he would definitely like the idea of mastering all sorts of arts because he mm -hmm. does talk about mastering all the martial arts. And I think that it was expected of samurais to master all the martial arts. Mm -hmm. But I think that we can tie the very beginning of the book with the very end when he talks about mastery, where I think in the end he says something like, when you really grasp these principles, you will simultaneously break free from them. Yes. Which seems to me to imply something like the following, that we are, in a sense, born into a particular culture, and he is someone who is sort of educated within the traditional martial culture and the code of the samurai, but at the end of the day, what we are developing and the skills and techniques we're developing and we're teaching to the next generation, there are ways in which we try to capture something deeper. So I think that what he says is that at the end of the day, when you reach the full mastery, you will see that all these practical guides, they are imperfect ways in which we try to communicate to others what can be grasped and must only be grasped individually. Yes. So it's ways, we, it's sort of some ladders we throw to people to raise them up in order to get them on their own feet. But they can only choose to climb them themselves. Yes. I think he's, he's trying to get at the point that you've got to foster an attitude in yourself about self-mastery. There's no rote learning how to do it. The, the, the means of approaching it yourself is the lesson, the main lesson. Once you've got that sorted, then you're okay. And he, he says something to that effect when he's talking about movement and footwork and things like that. You don't consciously do it, you do it so often that it becomes second nature, yes. which kind of reminds me of um, Aristotle's, uh, you know, Discussion virtue. on habituation. Exactly, yes. yeah. And there's sort of echoes of that as a, a Western equivalent. And I think there's obviously a lot of truth to that. I mean, the fact that it, it's present in both Eastern and Western canon 
should be testament to that, as well as it being relatively obvious that most people just anecdotally, that yes, habituation is how you become virtuous, but then I think the true difficulty is knowing or what to look for and being able to stop yourself from doing something that might be a bad habit because it's not always clear. So I think we should discuss a bit about the samurai. I'm looking forward to it. I, I don't know a massive amount. Okay, so I must say also that I'm not a, an expert either, but I gathered some information. So basically, you know, it, I think it's going to be a food for thought symposium. So I think the samurai were something like the elite warrior class of pre-modern Japan. And uh, the history of Japan, at least through the eyes of the scholars, are... <laughs> okay, so when we're trying to understand the history of Japan, just like we try to understand the history of any other nation, we are splitting it into periods. And I think that there was a period called the Heian period that roughly extended from the end of the 8th century AD to the end of the 12th century AD. And in that period, there were land-owning nobles, I think feudal lords, that were called daimyo. Daimyos, yeah. Daimyos, yeah. Who basically formed private armies to defend their territories because they were spending lots of time in the imperial court of Japan. So the samurai were essentially warriors that were protecting the, the, the lands of their own and the interests of their master. I think the term samurai isn't necessarily a term that was used by themselves. I think they call themselves bushi, that, called, that, that meant something like armed gentry, and their way was called bushido. That's, it's the way of the bushi. So mm -hmm. I think they call themselves bushi. The samurai, the term samurai thing was used by other class, social classes to refer to them. That meant something like attending to a master, something like that. I take this from Thomas Cleary, who has translated many books from Eastern philosophy, and uh, he has brilliant introductions to them. So they practiced the way the Bushido, that was the code of ethics of the samurai. It, it was the way of the warrior and it focused on several, we would say, virtues like un unwavering loyalty to and devotion to your master, honor, compassion, courage, and let me see some other ones I have here. Self-discipline so, and self-control, that, that's a massive theme in the book. That's the main one he really touches on in the book, isn't it? Yes, yeah. and sincerity. And basically, the I heard that at their peak somewhere they formed 10% of the army. They were sort of aristocratic warriors. Most of them were highly literate and skilled in various arts. And they were sort of human examples of virtue. And they were also used as exemplars of virtue in order to, for the lower classes. And uh, they were essentially seeking alternative means of employment 
during the Tokugawa shogunate that implemented some policies that brought peace to Japan. So they had to do more to take other crafts. And I think it sort of echoes here because he is talking about how the way of the samurai helps you sort of with other arts because he says something like at the at the base at the basis of life is something like the skill of the warrior mm -hmm. Th that's a really bad way of portraying what he wants to say but i think he says something like that that at the end of the day the way of the warrior and the way of the of the artisan and the virtuous person are really close yeah it kind of surprised me in a way because he fleshes out that he's been this swordsman, this warrior for pretty much the entirety of his adult life and much of his teenage years, right? First yeah. jewel at 13. Yeah. And you'd think that, well, if he'd specialised in it that early, then that would have been all that he did. But he seems to um, sort of compare it to trades that you might think might be a bit lower in the hierarchy, perhaps. Because, of course, in, in feudal Japan, samurai would have been regarded more highly than, say, a carpenter. And yet, he almost communicates his ideas as if he regards them as equals, in a sense. Not necessarily in a subversive way, more so that the principles underlying them are the same. And therefore, you know, someone who can achieve great mastery as a warrior can also apply that into you know, being a good craftsman or vice versa. And um, it's interesting that you, you say it comes at a time whereby they were looking for other professions, because I didn't know that when I was reading the book. And um, I did wonder um, who he was writing for particularly. And that makes sense that he and his, his class, if you will, um, were having to adapt to a new situation. And by comparing the same principles in which they'd had to operate with in, in war and in, in combat, then that makes it translate quite nicely to these other professions that they'd have to do. And it might actually make it less of an indignity. I think that, that now you've said it, it kind of comes across that way that there's just as much honour to be had in being a good craftsman in that there is an art to it, just as there is with the sword. Yeah. Just because you're familiar with, with combat doesn't mean that that's the only way to be, you can still get just as much fulfillment. And I think he genuinely um, practiced that in his life from the sounds of it. I think a very cynical person would say something of the following, that he was writing just in order to help other samurais get jobs, basically. And he was basically helping them to draft their CVs. That's you'd, a very cynical way of looking at it. You'd have to be very close-minded to think yes. that that's his main motivation. But I think a lot of historians and interpreters are trying to give a very cynical interpretation to anything nowadays. I, do, I don't buy into it. And I think that he, he does have a point because as I was reading the book, he sort of convinced me that if you are a, someone who practiced as he did and followed that way of life, it can't be the case that you cannot improve to other areas of your life. Yeah, well, I, I understood what he was saying almost immediately. Yeah. I found that um, my approach to, say, learning an instrument, you know, in many ways, 
it's similar to wielding a sword. Um, not in that I, I can kill people with the sound of my guitar, although they do want to leave the room a lot of the time. Um, no, it's more that it, it teaches you how to approach something when you, your goal is to get better, and therefore by simply learning out the method in which you can improve yourself in one domain, it makes it easier to improve it in others. It's similar to how learning a second language makes learning a third a lot easier, yeah. in that you've already put in the hard work of how to go about the process of learning, and therefore you can approach learning more easily. I think it's that same principle, um, just applied to a different area, really. And I think we have other information to talk about the samurai that are really interesting. Maybe you ask yourself, how have you not mentioned seppuku yet? I haven't forgotten this. So basically, the order of the samurai was uh, disestablished in 1876, but the code of Bushido was uh, taken as a very important and influential code in uh, Japan afterwards. And I think that it was the main code of ethics or the sort of official code of ethics that the Japanese um, state wanted to enforce or to inculcate upon people, I think that's the word, until 1947, 45, sorry. Yeah, I wonder what happened there. Yes, so, and uh, the idea of seppuku has to do with a ritualistic disembowelment. It was their way of committing suicide in cases where that was the best thing possible for them. And that is a really interesting thing to contextualize because you, you may ask, how can this be the case? How can you have such a way of viewing things where you think that this is the best thing to do in any circumstance? And I think that this was what they did when they broke the Bushido code or when they were defeated in battle. So it is really the epitome, the embodiment of the death before dishonor mentality. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.